This past week, it really started to feel like Christmas. We may not have enjoyed all the shoveling and driving and the kind of weather that Tuesday had, but Tuesday night was a great gift for any soccer fans or fans of Canadiana as our national team beat the Mexicans, which was just wonderful to watch. On Wednesday morning, I went out with a friend on a walk, and it was just this beautiful time together because the blanket of snow was covering everything in the field nearby. The light came up in the sun and cast these gorgeous colors over across the land, and you think, man, it's starting to feel like Christmas. We put up our Christmas tree this past week, and right after the day it snowed, my daughter looked at me, all of four years old of her, with eyes wide open, said, Daddy, is today Christmas? There was just this excitement and joy in her voice. When we prepare for Christmas, it takes a lot of work. We got to buy uh, presents for friends and family members. We're setting up Christmas tree and decor. We're setting up plans with loved ones to make sure that we can enjoy the holidays together. And it's no different here at the church. When we think about Christmas, we plan these great events for all ages that we hope you can invite your friends to. We're working hard with worship services and special events that are taking place over the next little while. And even this upcoming week, we're going to be decorating everything but it needs preparation. Preparation itself matters. And we might just be preparing for Christmas, but we think about preparation for family vacations or preparation for the big event that you have at work or at school. It absolutely matters. And when we look at the book of Ezra, we see Ezra the priest showing up, and today he's going to work hard for two whole chapters to prepare this place for renewal. You have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Ezra chapter 7 and Ezra chapter 8. If you're on site, you can grab a Bible from the pew rack in front of you. If you're watching online, we're so glad you're joining with us. You can pause the video, download an app, and follow right along. For those of you who are new to church, you think the book of Ezra, what's that about? Uh, The opening pages of the Bible, you have a table of contents. Ezra is smack dab in the middle uh, of the Old Testament, which means it's before the birth of Jesus. Big numbers of the chapter numbers, small numbers of the verse numbers. And as you're opening up your Bibles, here's what's taking place so far. God has said to the people of Judah, if you obey me, things will go well for you. But if you do not obey me, things are going to go terribly bad. The people of Judah thought, ah, that can't be true. It would just happen into the northern nation of Israel. But for us Judites, we're following God. But they disobeyed. Things went bad, and the Babylonians came in and took them all into captivity. Eventually, we come to this place where uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, takes over the Babylonians, and we get this at the beginning of Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God in Jerusalem. In other words, for all of you Jews, for all of you Israelites spread across the Persian Empire, now you can go back home. When the people celebrate it and they're excited, and roughly 50,000 Jews travel from uh, all over Persia to go back to Jerusalem. Men, women, children, they pack up their homes, they gather supplies, and they prepare themselves for a 1,000-mile journey on foot. Probably took three to four months. Once they arrive, there's certainly some bumps along the road, but eventually they build the altar, they build the temple, and this is what we learned last week in chapter six. 
the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, the rest of the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. This is wonderful news. King Cyrus, the first king of Persia, decreed that this would happen, decreed that the Jews would go back home and enjoy being in Judah, enjoy the temple, enjoy the altar, enjoy worshiping the God of the Jews. So why is it not the end of the book? The last book of the Old Testament is written by a man named Malachi, and he's living among the Jews at the time, and he says, you're spiritually bankrupt. Yeah, you can erect these beautiful buildings, you can build this gorgeous temple, but until your hearts are renewed, until your hearts are dedicated to God, until your lives are transformed, God hasn't come among you in the way that you hoped and expected he would. So finally, after six chapters, we're introduced to the person of Ezra. This is chapter seven, verses one to six. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Moriah, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. Babylonia is the capital of Persia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. This phrase, the hand of God was upon him, is going to be seen five times in chapters 7 and chapter 8. And we have this grandiose introduction. Here is Ezra from great lineage, a descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses, the same Moses who took the Israelites out of captivity from Egypt, went across the Red Sea, and brought them to the doorstep of the promised land. He is a descendant of that Aaron. But there's another clue that might be even more important here. At the beginning of verse 6, notice how it says, Ezra went up from Babylonia. When the Jews were taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar back in 586, Nebuchadnezzar kept the, brightest, uh, the best and brightest to serve him in the capital city. The book of Daniel, which takes place while the Jews are in captivity, starts out this way. This is chapter 1, verse 3. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish. Listen to this next piece. They must be of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. They would be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans are another word for Babylonians. So Ezra was special. Ezra was good looking. Ezra had the right heritage. Ezra had the right lineage. Ezra was wise. Ezra had insight. Ezra was not intimidated by people of great political clout. And so we learn a few things here when we're introduced to Ezra. He's a descendant of Aaron. He is a scribe who's deeply skilled in the word of God, and he has God's hand upon him. And here's what we know about the Israelites. They need a renewal of their heart. Think about this for a moment. At any given time, you can get great biblical teaching. You can hop online and you can stream one of our services if you missed it, no problem. You can download a podcast from the best Bible teachers in the world. You can turn Christian radio on in your car. You can download podcasts. You can watch Right Now Media as you're getting ready in the morning or as you're cooking dinner. You can order books online or listen to audiobooks as you drive around. The possibilities are endless. 
But what if you're a Jew who lives 2,500 years ago? Let me give you a little bit of a timeline of what's taking place for our online church family. There'll only be three things on the screen at once so you can follow along easily. Josiah, the last great king of Israel, died in 609 BC. 31 years of listening and following one of Israel's greatest kings. But then it went all downhill from there. Following Josiah were four kings who were terrible. They did not follow God. They did not listen to God. And eventually Babylon came in and took them into captivity. Judah was exiled in 586 BC. While Josiah was excellent, the kings following him refused to follow and obey God's word. About 50 years later, Israel returns in 538 BC. After Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians took them into captivity, they lasted another 50 years before Cyrus and Persia took over as the ruling empire. Another 25 years, give or take, after that, and the temple is completed in 515 BC. Now, there's a couple bumps along the road. There was about a 16 to 20-year hiatus in which nothing was done. Ezra arrives nearly 60 years later in 458 BC. The reason I kept Josiah there at the top is so you could see the difference We have access to great Bible teaching in our phones. They waited 150 years between the great King Josiah and Ezra coming back to Jerusalem. Think about how hard it's been to worship at home during this pandemic. You're like, oh, it'll be over right away. Oh, maybe a couple more weeks, maybe a couple more months. They were waiting for 150 years Now, to be sure, perhaps the priests and the Levites, once the temple was built, they were doing something. We just don't know what. But obviously, it wasn't a lot because God raised up Ezra to go from Persia to the Jews in Jerusalem. So here's what we read in verses 7 to 10. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, some of the priests and the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he arrived in Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra doesn't want to be some hoity-toity academic living in some ivory tower. He's not some empty moralist who doesn't want to live it out himself. Ezra has his heart set on the word of God and bringing it to God's people and living it out so people can see the kind of change and impact it makes. We read three things there in in verse 10. We read that he studied the word of God. He simply didn't just study it or read it a couple times and then move on. This was a lifelong commitment to learning and understanding the the Torah, the 613 laws given to the people of uh, Israel as they're traveling through the desert. I remember being in grade 12 and I had finished reading the Bible for the first time. I was pretty proud of myself. I went and I talked to one of my youth pastors and I said, I finished the Bible. And he said, good for you. And I said, well, now what am I supposed to do? And he looked at me and he said, you read it again. There's this beautiful passage in Psalm 119 that says, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than the teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. 
if we want to see renewal in our own lives, if we want to see renewal in our families, if we want to see renewal in our church and around the world, it means not only studying God's word, but doing what it says. So Ezra said, I'm going to practice what was learned. This isn't simply an academic exercise. He models a level of understanding, and the people look at him and go, Ezra must love God because he lives it out in such a powerful way. I remember being in Bible college, and about a dozen of us were all hanging out, and one of the beloved um, Bible professors was walking by. One of my friends made the comment, that man oozes the Holy Spirit. I don't know if I've ever heard that phrase uttered before or since, but I've thought about it regularly. How great is God's work in this man's life that people look at him and see the power of God taking place? Finally, he taught what was learned. Think about the people who have impacted your lives. Maybe they're family members that you love and you deeply respect. Maybe it was a professor or a pastor you really enjoy, some really close friends that you look up to. It's not necessarily what they teach you, as impactful as that is. It's how they live their lives that grabs a hold of you and you say, I want to follow that person. Once a month, Sid Coop comes in, and I'm so grateful for his ministry. In my first few months as a lead pastor, it would be pretty difficult to not have somebody come in and kind of help from the pulpit. And I think we're uh, grateful and thankful for what Sid brings on a monthly basis, but it's not just that he's a great teacher. Sid is well-known. If you missed last week, he said that he had spoken in 21 cities over a span of 16 days. He spoke in uh, Victoria, British Columbia, and he spoke in Moncton, New Brunswick, and 19 other cities besides. But if you've spoken to Sid before or after a service, perhaps in the foyer, it's not just an academic exercise. He's humble. He's loving. He's kind. He's a great man of God. But Ezra doesn't come alone. He doesn't make this 1,000-mile journey from Babylon to Jerusalem all by himself. The king at the time, Artaxerxes, encourages a second round of exiles to return. This is the first few sentences of his letter that he sent out throughout all of Persia, uh, 11 to 13. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes... King of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go up with you. This letter goes on for another 15 verses, and it's incredibly encouraging. He, like Cyrus, king of Persia, gives permission for everybody to go back home. But he doesn't just give permission. He gives them a boatload of money. We're going to come back to that later. And he gives them a decree. And he says, if the people is not enough, if the money is not enough, here is a decree that the surrounding provinces will have to help you out and give you the resources you need to do the things you need to do. So Artaxerxes seems like a pretty swell guy, doesn't he? I mentioned earlier that there's five different times where we read the phrase, the hand of the Lord. And we see the hand of the Lord mightily at work behind the scenes. And this letter, as wonderful as it is, might not be as altruistic as originally it seems. The first three kings of Persia are Cyrus, the king of Persia. His son, Cambyses, and Gamada lasts a couple of months. It was a disaster. But then we hear of Darius, the fourth king of Persia. 
I've enjoyed immensely my study on this book, and I have not shared half the stories of what Darius has done. He is an incredible king, and if you look him up online or you go to Wikipedia or something of that sort, it will say he is one of the greatest kings to ever walk this earth. But then he has a son, Xerxes, and this is the same Xerxes in the book of uh, Esther, and Xerxes is kind of a fool. If you're not familiar with the book of Esther, here's basically what happens. Xerxes says, kill all the Jews. Then he says, kill the man who said I should kill all the Jews. And then he gets a Jew to replace the guy who said, you should kill all the Jews. He's a little bit of a fool. He's a dud. And being raised up in Darius's home, he thought, all this luxury, all this extravagance, I love it. I should just get more of it. But what happens when a king wants more extravagance? Who pays for it? It's me and it's you. And so he taxes the people to death. His son, Artaxerxes, comes in and he's in a precarious position. Because when people get taxed to the point where they don't feel they can make ends meet, what do they do? They revolt. Here's a map of Persia. You'll notice um, at the bottom left-hand corner of that map that you see Egypt. And who's right beside Egypt? It's Jerusalem. It's the province of Judah. And so what Artaxerxes does here is extremely savvy. The Egyptians, knowing that they're about 1,500 miles away from the capital of Persia, recognize if we revolt, he can't really do much about it. And so he recognizes that he can't stop the Egyptian revolt, but what he can do is he can stop the province of Judah from revolting. So he says, Ezra, a man who I trust, a man who is steeped in this Jewish tradition, you go back to Judah, go with a lot of people, go with an abundance of money, go with all the resources I give you, and you know what, if Egypt goes away, I can deal with that, but stop it right there. It's a smooth move. Listen to how Ezra responds at the end of his letter in verses 27 and 28. Blessed be the God of our fathers who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. So I took courage for what? The hand of the Lord my God was on me. I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. We worship a God who is always at work, a God who is in control of the ones who are in control. Ezra is prepared for renewal. Ezra is educated, having grown up in Babylon and being in the king's court. He has received the best teaching, has received the best culture, he has received the best manners. We know that he's politically connected because Artaxerxes gives him this letter himself. We know that he's a godly man because he's bringing this law, he's lived it out, and he wants to teach it to all of God's people. So how many people are going to go with him? A number of years earlier when Cyrus, the first king of Persia, says, all you Jews, I'm giving you permission to go back to Jerusalem. 50,000 men, women, and children gather together and go down to Jerusalem to rebuild. The altar is there. The temple has been rebuilt. The communities are starting to build up and create their economic status so that they can care for one another. So of course more people are going to come, aren't they? The total number for round two, 7,500. That's a rough estimate, of course. We don't have the exact numbers. I like numbers. They're fun for me. 7,500 is only 15% of 15,000. 50,000, pardon me. 
Why would the Jews want renewal if we have comfort where we are right now? It's a good question for us, I think. Why would we want renewal if we're comfortable with how everything is right now? And you can look around, you can go, Dave, things are going pretty good. There's almost 200 people in this room. Youth ministry is doing great things. We just had the Cub Car Race on Friday night, special events all of December. Things are going excellent. Is that okay? Or do you say, God, I want more. God, I want you to renew my own heart. God, I want you to renew my family. God, I want to renew this church. I want to see radical life change. I want to have the boldness and the courage to go to my friends at work and at school and in the surrounding community and tell them about Jesus. I want to hear story after story from the baptism tank. I want to have more young families standing on this platform, dedicating their children because God is bringing them to church. We want to see people lead alpha groups so they can hear and understand and know about Jesus. We want to see people overcome dramatic sins in their lives and celebrate with them the radical transformation and the renewal that's taking place but are we willing to put in the work? In chapter eight, verse 15, we read, I, Ezra, gathered them to the river that runs to the Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found that none of them were the sons of Levi. None of them were the sons of Levi. The Levites are the one who run the temple. The Levites are the one who do the sacrifices. The Levites are the one who minister to the people of God. All priests are Levites, not all Levites are priests. But it's the Levites, it's the tribe of Levi that cares for and brings God to the people and not one of them comes. In three weeks, we're gonna have a really great event here. If you have a young family, sign up, register for it. It's going to be a blast. You're going to walk into our building. There's going to be about 50 people at a time, but we're going to start here in the main auditorium. Kelsey and me are going to have fun. We're going to play games. Kelsey's going to do a devotional. We might do a song. And then we're going to go see a live nativity and play a bunch of carnival games in the gym. It's going to be a blast. Imagine Kelsey says, we need volunteers and she puts it out to the staff, and she puts it out to our church family, and 10 people say, I'm going to serve. And Kelsey goes, eh, it's okay. And she looks around, and she recognizes that of those 10 people, none of them are staff. I'm at home smashing my kids in Mario Kart. Conrad's at some Napoleon Dynamite conference, and the guys are listening to records in the back room or something like that. So what does Kelsey do? What does Ezra do? This is chapter 8, 16 to 18. Then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerib, another Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyreb and another Elnathan, who are men of insight. I sent them to Edo, the leading man at that place in Caspia, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the palace, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. When Ezra learned that no Levites chose to come with them, he went out and he pursued them. Not much is known about Edo or about Cassia, but apparently it was a place that uh, the Levites were trained. And so this word goes out from Artaxerxes, all you Jews, 
Everybody who's tired of living in Persia, go back to Jerusalem. The altar is built. The temple is built. The communities are gathering together and doing great things. And the priests themselves who are in training to work in the temple in Jerusalem go, eh, I got better things to do. But Ezra knew they had a lot to offer. They would be visible for that spiritual renewal. And so he sent ambassadors with specific words, tapping them on the shoulder and inviting them to an adventure of life change. There's no mention of guilt, no verbal manipulation. It's an understanding that there's a lot of work to be done and God is going to accomplish his calling. I've taken a couple classes in the social sciences, but I'm not an expert. But I've always been intrigued. What does it take to change a culture? How many people does it take so that there's a tipping point and the culture begins to change? And you hear that and you go, oh, 51%, but that's not the case. If you've read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Tipping Point, if you've taken some sociology classes, you know the number is about 15 to 20%. How many people go back to Jerusalem? About 15%. When more people are added to the fold, you would think they would be finally ready to move out. But Ezra has one more piece to cover, one more idea that's going to take place. It's 21 to 23. He says, people, before we make this journey, we need to pray. So I proclaimed a fast right there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a journey, a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king what? The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. The power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. My family and I, when we go on a road trip, we're going to the mountains, we're going on a vacation, we'll stop and we'll pray. And we'll pray for 30 to 60 seconds, and then we'll, with our Tim Hortons in hand, we head out. But Ezra's saying, no, no, no. We've got 7,500 people. We've got supplies, we've got materials, we've got an abundance of wealth. We need to make sure God will protect us. Remember now, there's a revolt in the provinces again because Xerxes has not led the nation well, and Artaxerxes, as good as, as much as he's trying, still hasn't fixed the roads. But Ezra says, we need to show to our king the power of the hand of our God, that God will protect us, God will provide for us. Now, maybe you're saying to yourself, well, if there's 7,500 people, isn't that a strong enough band together? I mentioned earlier, I like numbers. Do you know what they were traveling with? At an absolute minimum, it's the equivalent of over $100 million in cash. 4,000 pounds of gold, 25,000 pounds of silver and many more supplies and things to bless the temple as well. Ezra felt that to demonstrate God's power to the king, he would not ask for a military escort. Now you can understand just how difficult that journey must have been. It's Ezra 7 and 8. So what does it mean today? What does that mean 2,500 years later? Here's what I think. Renewal is hard. Renewal is costly, and renewal means taking genuine risks. If we do the things we've always done, we're going to get the results we've always got. 
if we want to see renewal, if we actually truly genuinely want to see our lives changed, our families changed, the church changed, and this world changed, it means taking risks. But this passage chooses not to be specific. This passage says, what are you going to do? How are you personally going to prepare for renewal? So what is it? What's the one thing that starts today? And maybe you sit here and you go, I'm going to need to start with me. And personal renewal means today I stop looking at pornography. And I'm going to find somebody to help me keep accountable to do that. Today is the day I grab a connect card in the pew rack in front of me or do something online and say, it's time to get baptized because I haven't done it yet and I want to tell the story of God working in my life. Today I commit to inviting my friends, my family members, my coworkers, whoever it might be, to come to Alpha or to come to some Christmas event and I'm not going to stop until somebody comes with me. Today I'm going to find a place to serve. I don't know what God has in store for our church. And nobody has asked me this question yet, none of the board members, none of our staff members, but I wonder if somebody came up to me and said, Dave, what do you expect renewal to look like? What do you think God will do? Do you think God is going to radically transform this church? I'd say, I certainly hope so. I hope that life change happens. And I hope that we hear story after story after story of God radically transforming our lives. I hope we see that baptism tank filled because it means people's lives are being transformed. I hope that our church is filled with young families. I hope that people love coming to church to sing the songs, to get engaged in community, to hear the sermon. I hope people think this is a place where I can be encouraged so that I can go back into my community and my sphere of influence and change the world. I realize Ezra isn't the book most of us go to when we need encouragement. You probably have your favorite verses. Maybe it's a book of Philippians where you just have numerous coffee cup verses that are so encouraging. Maybe it's the verse Joel read earlier at the beginning of his pastoral prayer, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But for the Jews, the book of Ezra is immensely important. The Jews looked at Ezra as a second Moses. In the same way Moses took the Israelites and brought them out of captivity and gave them the word of God, so Ezra went to the Jews in Persia, brought them out of captivity, and gave them the word of God. But every Sunday we talk about Jesus. And as great as Moses was, as great as Ezra was, Jesus Christ is the true and better Ezra. And while Ezra might have brought people out of captivity, Jesus is saying it's not just one nation, it's all people, all tribes, all nations, all languages from all around the world, and I'm bringing them out from the greatest captive of all, and I'm gonna rescue them from sin, and I'm gonna rescue them from death, and I'm not just going to bring them the word, I am the word incarnate. And the gates of hell will not stand against it. And I'm going to set the captives free, and I'm going to give them hope and life to the full. Where Moses and Ezra teach the word of God, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me.
It's in the person of Jesus that renewal is found. It's in the person of Jesus who we claim to and we sing to and we worship every week believing renewal will happen, will change our lives, our families, our church, and the world at large because we worship a great and awesome God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Ezra. And while people might not be familiar with it, we hope that this has been a story and a, uh, of great encounters with you, of a people longing for renewal, of waiting for the king to come. And God, we know that you have sent Jesus Christ, our king, to come and to be the ruler of our hearts and to show us what the kingdom of God looks like. God, I ask that we as a church, when we have fallen short, that you would forgive us. When we have let you down, that you would remind us how great and awesome you are and how you always forgive us and watch over us. And God, we pray that you would fill us by the power of your Holy Spirit so that renewal would happen, that it would start with us, it would transform our families, our church, and this world knowing that the person of Jesus, the spirit of Christ, is alive and working in us. Pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.